we have been going through a series called Jesus the God-Man Who Dwelt Among Us. And the purpose of the series is we wanted to look at Jesus throughout the summer and kind of explore some different facets of his life, of who he was, his teaching. So the first month uh, in June, we looked at the parables of Jesus. This month, we've, looked, we're, we're, we've been looking at different parts of Jesus' life, some very intense moments uh, in his life. Um, and so this is the last week in that part. And then next month, we're going to look at some... Uh, conversations that Jesus had, uh, some friends that he had, and look at what did those things look like. But I'm excited about today. Last week and this week, we've been kind of in the same uh, week of Jesus's life, his, his last week of ministry before he goes to the cross. Uh, and so usually when we celebrate Palm Sunday and then we have Easter, it's in that week. That's kind of what we've been covering the last two weeks because it was very emotional, very intense uh, time in Jesus's life. And today, what we're going to be talking about is his moment in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, and for uh, just to kind of get a timeline of what is happening here, right before uh, Jesus comes to the Garden, he has the Last Supper, the infamous Last Supper that, you know, a lot of people have the paintings uh, on their house, and apparently the Illuminati is in it because there's a triangle. Um, and so that is the last, if you've seen the Da Vinci Code, then you know what I'm talking about. Um, so right before this, Jesus has the last, last Supper. He foretells kind of his betrayal of Judas. Uh, and then after this, he goes away um, to pray. And when he goes away to pray, uh, this is kind of his last moments uh, with the Father and with some of his close friends before uh, he starts this kind of road of betrayal, of torment, of pain, of suffering to the cross and eventually to his death. Uh, so it's a very intense time. Uh, and what's really interesting is I love this passage because it's the moments right before Jesus does this. He knows what's going to happen. And so we get a glimpse into his mind, into his prayers of kind of the intimate moments between him and God the Father. And so we're going to read from, chapter, uh, from the book of Matthew uh, chapter 26, verses 36 to 46. I forgot to get the verses up today, so you're just going to have to listen to me this morning. Um, I know, I'm sorry, my bad. Today's a fun morning. Uh, but let's read. In verse 36, it says this. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for a second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep, sleep and take your rest later on 
See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. I kind of feel like it's, it ends at Shakespeare. It's some, like, the betrayer is at hand. Rise, let's, let's walk into what's about to happen. This is an intense, intense moment in Jesus' life. He foregoes sleep. He takes his best friends to be with him. He takes Peter, James, and John, his three closest disciples. He's sad, he's troubled, and by the end of the passage, he is about to be betrayed by one of the 12 closest people that he's had walk with him in the last three years, Judas. What is going on here? There is a lot happening, a lot to kind of digest here in this passage, uh, a lot that's happening in the context of this passage. And so to kind of jump into what is happening here, I want to look at the prayer that Jesus prays. Jesus says this one prayer. He, he prays this to God the Father. He says, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. This is crazy. Jesus was about to think, he was about to drink of something that he thought may be too much for him to bear. Now, if we look at the title of the series, Jesus the God-Man Who Dwelt Among Us, we believe Jesus was fully God, but also fully human. And we're looking this month at kind of these human moments that he had that sometimes we forget that Jesus was human, flesh and blood like me and you. And this is a very human prayer that Jesus has. He says, if it is possible, Father, let this cup pass from me. See, the cup that Jesus was about to drink, it symbolized the wrath of God. Jesus was about to experience the full wrath of God. And to kind of understand what this really meant, I want us to read back in the Old Testament. We're going to read two passages in the Old Testament that talk about the cup that people had to drink. And when they drank this cup, God was saying to them, you are going to drink the cup of my wrath and what that looked like. So first I want to read Isaiah 51, 17. It's, we have to really understand what Jesus was about to go through, really understand what he was doing, what he was going through. And so in Isaiah 51, 17, it says this, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. In Jeremiah 15, 15 to 18, it says this, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. So I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom the Lord send me drink it. And Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, its kings and officials, to make them a desolation and a waste and a hissing and a curse as at this day. See, the cup that Jesus was about to drink, the wrath of God, it was the wrath that was stored up for all peoples at all times. It was the sins of the past, of the present, and of the future. And it was all coming to this one moment that Jesus was going to then take and bear on his shoulders. 
It was a cup that only Jesus could drink from. Nobody else could bear the weight of this wrath. Nobody else would be the perfect sacrifice. Nobody else could be the spotless lamb. It was something that only Jesus can do. Yet he did not deserve it. You know, imagine growing up and you were a good kid. I know that's a stretch for a lot of us here, but just bear with me for a moment. You're growing up and you played by the rules. You did what your parents told you, you know, straight A student, like I'm really dreaming right now. Never fighting, lying, stealing. Let's say you had a big family like mine. You have, I have four biological brothers and sisters, two adopted uh, brother and sister. So we had a lot of people in our house. You know, when you have that many people in your house, you know if you grow up in a big family, your siblings are crazy. It gets rowdy. Imagine for everything that they did wrong, you had to take the beating because I grew up in a time where we got beatings. So imagine that every time they did something wrong, they did something crazy, that instead of them being punished for what happened, you were punished for what happened. You would say, that's messed up. This, this seems very unjust. You would be right. But yet this is what Jesus was about to do. He was going to take on the wrath of God that was meant for us. Even though he did nothing wrong, he had never sinned, he had fought off every temptation, he was going to drink the cup of God's wrath for us. I want to read this verse, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22 to 25, because what Peter does here in this verse is he truly explains the goodness of God, the goodness of who Jesus was, his perfection, and what happened to him. It says this, he or Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus did no wrong. We have to understand that. He did not use his position of power to threaten people when they started coming at him with false accusations. He did not protest and build signs when he was treated unjustly. He took it, he laid down, and it says he was like a sheep led to the slaughterhouse. And he trusted the judge, his father, that what was happening was good. The cup that he was drinking it meant a lot of pain. It meant a lot of suffering. But in Romans 1, it talks about the wrath of God. 
And Paul describes the ultimate wrath of God as this, separation from him. When Jesus cries out on the cross before he dies, he says this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that moment, he was experiencing the fullness of the cup that he was drinking, separation from his father. Imagine he has been intertwined, connected, one in the Trinity for all of eternity. Even we, we can't even understand eternity because time is a construct that God created for us to live him, and he lives beyond time. So we don't even understand the eternity that he has lived. But yet at this moment, he was separated. And so Jesus prays this prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, if it is possible, take this cup away from me. We have to understand the agony and the pain that Jesus understands that he's about to go into. His Godship does not cancel out what is about to happen. Sometimes you may think of what Jesus did, and it's, it's a history lesson to us. It's this, it's this thing that happened a long time ago, or we understand him as God. And, and the weight of what he did for us doesn't truly settle on us because we think, oh, he's God. But if we understand the cup, that he knew he was about to bear, if we understand who he was, his humanness and his godness, then we look at this prayer when Jesus Christ says, if it's possible, take this away. His godship did not cancel the weight. It did not cancel the pain. It did not cancel the hardship. But you may think like, hey, he got to go through this with friends, right? No. What he was about to go through, he was going through entirely alone. See, in this passage we read, in Jesus' greatest hour of need, what happens in verse 40, um, he, he, he had taken Peter, James, and John. He takes them to pray with him. And he needs to be alone. What's about to happen, he's about to be betrayed. And when he takes them to pray, he says, all right, you guys pray here. I just, I need to go a little bit further than you. It says they, he was about a stone's throw away. You pray here. I'm going to go over there and pray. I need your support. I need you right now. In verse 40, it says, and Jesus came to the disciples and found them sleeping Man, you ever need somebody, and you're like, hey, I, I just need you to be here right now. Come with me. And, you, and they, they're sleeping when you call, and it's like no answer. And it's like, yo, I thought you had me. What's going on? It's a stinky feeling. And he said to Peter, could you not watch with me for one hour? It's like, I just asked you for an hour. But it says that they gave into the temptation of their flesh. Meaning this, 
Yeah, God, I know you told me to pray, but I'm a little tired right now, so I'm just going to go to sleep. Thanks. Bye. All right, before we judge Peter and James and John, I need to look at my own heart and think, how many times did you call me to pray? And I thought, good night. But in Jesus' greatest time of trouble, he was kind of looking to these guys, counting on them to be with him, but no, they slept. But this is only a foreshadowing of what was to come. Yeah, his closest friends, he called them to watch with him, but they couldn't watch. But right after this scene, Judas comes with the soldiers and the chief priests to betray him. He sells out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Another betrayal. Moments after this, when Jesus is being taken into custody, Peter, one of his very close, one of the three that he chose to come with him to the garden to pray, denies him in front of three different people. He says, I never met this man before. I don't know who you're talking about. No, you're mistaking me for somebody else. I I have no clue who this Jesus is. Not only were his best friends cutting him off, not only were his best friends turning their back on him, but he was now experiencing the wrath from his father as well. He was alone and he was going to be covered in sin that was not his. Yet what does Jesus say in his prayer? He says in verse 39, my father, if it be possible, let this this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. In verse 42, he says, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. This is crazy to me. See, we don't understand prayers like this in our culture. We just don't. It, 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 we, we do not understand what it means to pray like this in our culture. Why? Because in Western culture, it is all about me. It is about my comfort. It is about my happiness. It is about me. And what Jesus is praying here, he's saying, man, I want another way out. See, Jesus wants an out. He is asking God the Father that he knows all things are possible for. He says, if it's possible, can there be another way? And you got to think of this. This is Jesus, the Son of God, part of the Trinity that is saying this. But he doesn't only pray one time. He prays this three times. He does not want to do this. That blows my mind. He is trying to get out. This is just such a crazy moment in history that Jesus, this God-man, had found something that was testing his limits. The amount that he was willing to walk through, the, the humanity that he was in, was saying, can you please find something else? See, in our society, though, we've been conditioned We've been conditioned that if if we aren't happy, if if it doesn't make us feel good, if it's not something that we want, then what? 
we will not do it. Who cares who's telling us to do it? Telling me to do it? Who do you think you are telling me something that I have to do? You're giving me a command? <laughs> Let's see how far that command gets you when I don't do it. That is, that, that is our culture. That is who we are. We are no longer, we are an independent people. We are people that glory in our ability to say no. We glory in our ability to do what we want. It's the American dream, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so this prayer that Jesus is praying is sometimes so hard and far out of reality for us to understand because when we deeply do not want to do something, we do not do it because it is not something that's comfortable for us. It's not something that's gonna make us happy. We'll make maybe our little pros and our cons list and the cons are way farther. It's like death, whipping, cross, beating, uh, not, not happening. But what does Jesus say? He says, not my will. Not my will. We don't even like the implication of taking a command from somebody. It's crazy. It's like even if we're going to listen to somebody that's telling us something to do, we, we preface it like, yeah, I wanted to do it, though. You know, he's not really telling me to do it. I wanted to do this. But yet he is obedient in Philippians 2.8, it describes this this way. It says, Jesus humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. His obedience wasn't just leading to only some death. It wasn't just a moment that he passes from life to death. His obedience was leading him to betrayal from his closest friends, intense physical pain from beatings, from whippings, and the cross, emotional pain through being mocked by being spit on by being naked in front of crowds of people and ultimately the full wrath of God for sins of other people his obedience led him to death but not just death but death on a cross some of the one of the craziest ways that humans have invented to kill somebody in an agonizing and painful way it is suffocation through pain and through humiliation. And you might be thinking like, this is tough to swallow, Justin. Like, I came here to feel good this morning. Why are we talking about this? And it's because it is intrinsically important for people who follow Christ to understand what he's done for you. We have to understand what Jesus went through. If we do not understand what Jesus went through, then we do not truly understand the depth of our sin. Because it, it, he wasn't going through this for fun. He wasn't going through this because it seemed like a cool story for God to tell for 2,000 years. He went through this because the depth of our sin was so bad, there needed to be a complimentary sacrifice to cancel it out. 
See, if we don't understand what Jesus went through, then we don't understand the depth of his love for us. We don't understand how real it was for God the Father to send his only begotten son into the world. To go through something that is so traumatizing, so dramatic, so painful. If we don't truly understand what was happening in this moment, then how could we understand the depth of his love for us? See, we may have come in here this morning and said, there's no way that he could love me. There's no way that what I have done in my life that I can come and go before him. Then I would submit to you this morning that there's no way then that you understand the sacrifice that he's made for you to come to his throne. Because if you understand the depth, if you understand the true sacrifice that Jesus made that day, then you understand your sin is insignificant at the cross. He bore that weight. That when you come before God, he doesn't say, well, that sin was actually too much for what Jesus did. No, what he says is he says, what my son has done has covered everything that you have done and there's nothing that you could have done that is more powerful than the sacrifice that Jesus made on that cross. See, if we're truly to understand the weight of his love and the weight of our sin, then we have to truly understand the weight of his sacrifice that I have done deeds that are dirty. I am not righteous in my own means whatsoever. And you went to the cross because I was so dirty that there needed to be a better, more acceptable sacrifice. But in my dirtiness, you still went to the cross. It says that he did not come for a righteous man. But while we were still sinners, what this reminds us of is even at our best how incapable we are and how great he is. See, this, this good news that everybody went around and started spreading that had changed the entire world, this good news was this, that in that garden, that when he prayed this prayer and he said, if it is possible, take this away from me, the good news is this, that that second part of that prayer was not my will, but your will. The good news is that Jesus went down that path and bore the cross even though he didn't want to, even though he knew it was going to be painful, even though he knew it would be hard, even though it was testing the limits of his humanity. He did it, and he died. But death was not the end of that story. The, the weight of the sin was not the end of that story. See, the weight of what we have done that brought him to the cross, that was not the end of that story. 
The end of that story is when he took upon the sins of the world, when he took upon the sins of many, and he died, what happened? He conquered that sin and death, and he rose again, signifying a new covenant, a new righteousness that me and you can walk in. Where when I come before the throne room of God, I'm not coming with my righteousness, which the Bible says is filthy rags. No matter how good I feel like I've been this week, it is filthy rags before him. But I come with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is so important to remember, in fact, that Jesus institutes one of the sacraments, one of the pillars of what we do as tradition in the church. We call it communion, but it came from the Last Supper. Jesus knew that what was happening was so important that we couldn't really understand the the depth of our sin and the amazing grace that he sent us and his love for us unless we remembered constantly what he has done. And so right before he goes to the garden, there's this scene, the Last Supper, where he sits with his 12 disciples, and he says this. It says, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, the cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. See, Jesus was instituting a tradition that he said, when you get together, remember what is about to happen. Remember, like this bread that we are breaking, that it symbolizes my body which has been broken for you. So when we take the pieces of the bread and we see that it's broken, it's not a whole piece. What it symbolizes is the brokenness of Jesus' body on how he was whipped, on how he was sent to the cross, on how he was stabbed with the spear, on how they put a crown of thorns on his head so that his face was so disconfigured that he was hardly recognizable. When we take the pieces of the bread, we remember his brokenness. And then when we drink of the cup, we remember his blood that was spilled out for us, his life that was given for us. So if you've ever wondered, why do we do communion? Why do churches take communion? It's because of this moment here. That communion should be the symbol that truly reminds you of the goodness of God. That even though my sin has been immense, your broken body and your blood was spilled out so that I can have your righteousness. It's a time of remembrance. It's a time of thanksgiving. It's a time of repentance. We do it and we celebrate his great love towards us. What we do today is we're going to take communion. And what we can remember is that he still did it. Even when he prayed three times and asked God to take it away from him. That he still bore the cross for us. 
he still drank the cup of the wrath of God. He still went forward into betrayal, into pain, into suffering. And we can say today, we thank you, Jesus, for what you have done. We thank you for the sacrifice that you have made. Because of this, I am now an acceptable and a pleasing life before God. Because of what you've done, I can now experience the Holy Spirit. He dwells in the temple of my heart. Because of what you've done, I can now enter into eternity with you so that I will never actually die. But I would just pass from this life to the next. Because he still did it. We are here this morning and can rejoice and can worship and can praise and say, Jesus, we thank you that if you didn't say not my will but yours be done, then we wouldn't be here as forgiven sinners, but we would be here as damned people on our way to hell. But now we get to stand here in praise and in worship because you are great you are mighty because you've conquered sin and death and you have succeeded where I have failed while we're singing the next song we have communion set up here you can kind of use both aisles to come down during worship we're going to be worshiping over the next 10 to 15 minutes and I want us to kind of process communion today as we take it, as we understand it maybe a little bit more of what he has done for us. And as we process what he's done for us during worship at any moment, you can come up to receive communion today. You can take it, you can pray, you can stay here, take it and go back. You can take it back to your seat, worship and take it. doesn't matter. Take it as you feel ready to take it. But as you take it, as you take that broken bread, remember his broken body. As you drink of that cup, remember his spilled blood. That the reason that we can worship today fully righteous before God, the reason that we can experience the Holy Spirit this morning is because of what communion reminds us of what Jesus has done. Why don't we stand? sin and what was required to cover it, Father, is immense. And we thank you that you have done this because we know that we would have not have bared the same thing as perfect people. But yet also the depth of your love we rejoice in this morning. Because when you could have turned your back on all of us and said, forget these people that I have created that have not loved me and 
have turned away from me. Instead, you said, I will send and make another way for them to be with me. You have not left your children. And we praise you in that tomorrow, your great love for us. Amen. As we worship and as you feel led, you can come up and receive the cup and the bread.